Um, so we are in uh, Romans chapter 12. We're on the second half of a series called Gospel Depth. And, um, and, and we're in a series, Romans chapter 12, essentially what Paul does is he goes, Romans chapter one, chapters 1 through 11, Paul's laying out what the gospel of God is. In other words, this is what g- the good news, gospel means good news, this is the good news about what God has done through the person and work of Jesus to change the way you relate to God. That you no longer relate to God as someone who has not experienced grace, that grace has changed everything. Romans 5 says, we now live in grace. Your address could be like 316 Grace Place. If you're a Christian, it says we live in grace. That that's the only way we relate to God now. And then Romans chapters 12 through 15, what Paul does, it goes, if you have received a grace that has changed your relationship with God, the God of the universe, relationship you didn't earn or deserve, if that grace has impacted this relationship, it should also hit these relationships. In other words, what has happened vertically through grace, what has happened to you should now happen through you horizontally in your human relationships and the ways that you relate to one another. And in Romans uh, and all throughout the New Testament, the dominant metaphor for the church is that of a family or a household. And so what Paul does in Romans 12, what we've been talking about is he's giving us family values, family values. This is what we want to be true of our family. We're not perfect, but we're endeavoring to be this kind of a family. A value in my home is that we would all be safe. We don't, that doesn't always happen. Clyde broke his toe recently, okay? Uh, playing soccer barefoot, you can guess what happened. Broke his, broke his toe. There he goes. What's that? Wasn't his fault. Okay, there it is. <laughs> the doctor would say she should have been on, okay? But we're endeavoring towards that. There's a big difference between a family that, that seeks uh, a healthy safety and sometimes life happens and one that goes, we don't care. We've got no boundaries, no prohibitions, no rules. Go ahead and, and do what you want to do. Like kids walk around Thanksgiving with turkey carving knives, you know, that kind of thing. Go, go ahead and juggle those bets, right? That's crazy. But, so, so we're not perfect in safety, but safety is a value. And so Paul's saying, hey, here's some values. You're not going to do them perfectly, but you should absolutely aspire towards them. And you should make no excuses when you don't hit them. You should cry out for grace and then press on into them. And so some of those values are uh, patience. Uh, five weeks ago, I talked about the, the value of generosity, Four weeks ago, I talked about the value of hospitality, that we are to be a welcoming family. We're not a family that, that keeps people out. We're a family that welcomes people in. Three weeks ago, I taught on Romans twelve fifteen on the value of true empathy in the way of Jesus. So another value is empathy. Uh, last week, uh, there was really three values in our text last week, um, grace and peace, but a subset of grace is forgiveness. And I just felt like there was too much there. It was too rich. And so I turned last week's sermon into two sermons. And so last week's values we talked about were grace and peace, true peace and, and grace. And then this week I'm teaching on the family value, the last value we're going to look at in Romans 12. And it's a tough value, but a beautiful value, rightly understood and experienced and it's the value of forgiveness. And it's a value that, um, again, it's a hard one to walk in. How many of you guys in this room have ever been hurt by someone in your life before, by another human being? Show of hands. Okay, some of you guys have had very blessed lives. Uh, give it up, you know, uh, just kidding. All of us, and I'm, and I'm your pastor, so I know, I know a lot of your stories. I was at a, uh, we were at a retreat in Denver, and before that, we had about 13 people from our church go to this thing a couple months ago, and we played a game where you, it, like, people would throw out, like, kind of like two truths and a lie, but they had, like, their lies, or their truths that, would, like, you wouldn't guess, kind of like fun facts, and I knew everybody's. I was crushing in the game. They're like, this isn't fair, you're a pastor. 
like that's true. So, so that's fun and advantageous in those settings, um, but it's painful when I consider topics like this, when I think through the, the pain that I know is in the room. The little kids who are abandoned by parents who are in this room. Little kids who were abused by parents or other caregivers in this room. That people who were cheated on or lied to in this room. People who have had things stolen from them in this room. People who have been slandered and betrayed or ostracized or judged in this room. And, and so I, I don't take forgiveness lightly. Because all forgiveness starts with pain. All true forgiveness starts with the acknowledgement, I have been wounded I have been hurt. This guy, Dr. Terry Wardle, we've talked about a lot here. And he says, um, you cannot forgive uh, what hasn't been acknowledged and grieved. Like, you can't, you can't forgive something before you've grieved. Like, you can't forgive something that you haven't experienced. Otherwise, you're just saying words. Because part of forgiveness is, is, is taking the, the offense. And so, as we dive into this value of forgiveness, I just want to say again, this morning, I'm not talking down to you, acting like this is an easy thing. True forgiveness is hard for everyone. But what I want to do is, is, a, is a, as a preacher and teacher of God's word is to go, here's what the word says, and I want to call us up to it. So I'm not talking down to you, but I'm inviting you up to what God calls his people to. So if you guys have Bibles, we're going to look at today's text where we get this value of forgiveness from. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 19. Paul writes, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. And again, what Paul's describing in this text is forgiveness. Giving up on your own vengeance and entrusting it to God. But here's the thing. There are a lot of misconceptions about forgiveness, which leads to today's outline. All right? Uh, I've got four points. One is short. Relax. Got four. What forgiveness isn't. What forgiveness is. Why forgiveness is so hard. And where we can find the power to forgive where we can find the power to forgive. Uh, number one, what forgiveness isn't. What forgiveness isn't is forgetting. It isn't forgetting. Have you guys ever heard the phrase, forgive and forget? Anybody heard that? Um, that's, it's kind of a dumb phrase. I'm not calling you dumb if you've said it. it just, it's just not how it works. Forgiveness has nothing to do with forgetting. You forgive precisely what you cannot forget. If you could forget, you would, because forgetting is easier than forgiveness. And if you've forgotten what the offense was, you don't even know what you need to forgive. So it's gone. And here's the other thing. If you feel like you have to forget what happened to get to the place where you can forgive what happened, you'll never get around to forgiving. Now, uh, healing doesn't happen when we act like we were never hurt. It can only happen when we say, this is what happened to me. Sometimes forgetting an offense does happen, but it's almost always preceded by a choice to forgive. And so forgetting is often the result of forgiveness. It's not a synonym for forgiveness. Number two, forgiveness is not downplaying or excusing. It's not downplaying or excusing. When you forgive someone, you aren't announcing that what they did was okay. 
You aren't excusing it or minimizing it. You're not saying it's no big deal. You're actually saying the opposite. What you did was wrong and sinful and painful, and it was inexcusable. Forgiveness is what you do when you can't excuse what they did. Inexcusable offenses like unfaithfulness to a spouse or leaving your family or abusing a child or lying to a friend or rape or racism or stealing, we can go on and on and on. There's no like, oh man, it was this thing. Now, one of the things that I've done as a pastor with people is done something called a forgiveness exercise, and it's designed to help people start the journey of forgiveness. And one of the things that will happen often when we do that exercise is I actually have to tell them, it's in the instructions uh, from the spiritual director that wrote, I have to actually tell them, you're not allowed to legitimize or explain away what they did. So if your father abused you, I don't care in this moment that his father abused him. That provides helpful context, okay? That'll help you move forward in the future. That doesn't change what happened to you or the impact on you. Because if you think about it, every person who's sinned against anyone has been sinned against by someone. We're not saying that, that they didn't have a hard life or whatever it was, but it doesn't change what you experience. And it's wild. The minute I tell them they're not allowed to make excuses for the person who hurt them, almost always they move to tears pretty quickly. It's almost like if I give a reason for this, I don't have to feel it. But again, that Terry Worrell thing, until we feel it and grieve it, we can't really forgive it. And so it's not downplaying or excusing. Um, it's also not sweeping things under the rug. This is kind of a cousin to minimizing or excusing. It's not sweeping things under the rug. Uh, over the last 40 or 50 years, there's been uh, a ton of awful situations in the American church where victims of sexual abuse were called to forgive their abusers. Now, Jesus calls us to forgive our abusers, but what was being asked of them was not the forgiveness Jesus talks about. They weren't, now, again, the scriptures teach us that we're called to forgive people, but what these institutions meant by forgive, these churches meant by forgive at times, was make the problem go away. Shut up, stop talking about it, don't press charges. That has nothing to do with forgiveness. That is, um, that's making space for evil, which is itself evil. Okay? So forgiveness isn't pretend you weren't abused or you weren't hurt. Uh, we also can see this dynamic in, in, in a different way. Um, we, we see this dynamic sometimes, not always, but sometimes when, when black Christians are called to forgive racism by white Christians. And often, forgiveness that's being described is similar to what, what sexual abuse victims were being asked to do. Now, again, we should call black Christians to forgive racists because Jesus calls all Christians, black ones included, to forgive those who have wronged them. And we believe that what Jesus commands leads to healing. However, often, what the groups or institutions that were calling for black forgiveness were really doing, what they were really doing was asking for them to stop pushing for systemic change to some of our nation's institutions in the name of forgiveness, or to act like America has a perfect history, or the church has a perfect history, or that remnants of racism don't still impact American society in very specific, painful ways. Another thing I know is that the black church does not need to be taught how to forgive by the white church, by white America. They have a long history of doing that. Now, there's this false kind of dichotomy that's been created uh, by some conservative evangelicals that, that if you have forgiven, you will stop talking about racial injustice. 
And it's met with a false dichotomy on the other side, on the flip side, in some progressive woke Christian spaces, there's this idea that if you fight injustice, you better not forgive. Like if you forgive, you'll lose your zeal to, to fight injustice, and that's not true. Jesus teaches us that you can both forgive and fight injustice or seek justice for abuse or injury, but not in a vindictive, vengeful way. This is the way of Jesus. You can forgive someone and, uh, and simultaneously not seek out revenge and do your best to protect yourself and others from harm in the future by fighting against injustice. Or if we're talking about an abuse victim, um, you can forgive completely in the way of Jesus, not be vengeful, and make sure you call the authorities to protect others from harm in the future. And, and even yourself from harm in the future, depending on the relationship. We talked about this last week. Um, Romans 13 is coming uh, in a couple, a couple weeks. Um, we're, we're allowed as Christians, we are called as Christians to be good citizens in our society. And part of that is reporting things that need to be reported. So forgiveness is not sweeping things under the rug, but it's also, it also isn't necessary for misinterpretations. It isn't necessary for misinterpretations. It's a new point. Uh, by the way, I'm going to quote a book called Making Sense of Forgiveness four times today. I'm real self-conscious about that. Uh, it's by a guy named Brad, Brad Hambrick. This stuff's just so good. Uh, I'd encourage you to read the book, uh, but this is kind of like it's sponsored by Brad Hambrick this morning. Uh, this is my first quote of the day. I thought this was so, so helpful because I see this dynamic play out in relationships all the time. He says this, Read each of these statements and decide whether it is true or false. You can listen and decide whether it's true or false. Forgiveness is always a virtue. True or false? Hit me. True. Is it true? Yeah, it's, it's true. Forgiveness can be destructive to a relationship. True or false? It's true. It's true. There are times when forgiving someone reinforces our pride or sinful arrogance. True or false? True. They're all, it's true, 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 right? Shocking. They're like, these don't seem to go together. And he says, can you think of examples when forgiveness is not a virtue? Again, this would be false forgiveness. When forgiveness is harmful or when forgiveness reinforces pride. He says, think through these scenarios. we got three scenarios. A husband feels hurt because his wife disrespected him when she asked a question about a decision, she genuinely didn't understand the decision because he did not adequately explain it. Uh, a wife feels hurt when her husband failed to pursue her when his plans for their anniversary did not measure up to her expectations, which she had never told him about. And last but not least, we've got a friendship one. Friend A feels hurt when friend B is, willing, is unwilling to invest in the relationship. But investing means matching the unhealthy, excessive, codependent commitment friend A gives to the relationship. If each of these brief vignettes, the person who is hurting might assume that when they feel hurt, the Christian thing to do is forgive, right? Can you tell that forgiveness might not be a God-honoring response in these scenarios? In each example, offering forgiveness would be harmful to both people in the relationship. In each case, the hurt being forgiven was based on a misinterpretation, an assumption, Forgiving would further ingrain this misinterpretation. Accepting the forgiveness offered would add a level of social reinforcement to this misinterpretation. Is this making sense? If the husband says he forgives his wife, he would be under the continuing misconception that his communication about decisions was adequate and anything that, that aggravated his insecurities was disrespectful. So that guy doesn't grow. 
and it, as the communicator and in his identity. You guys see that? In the relationship, the wife's like, this is so annoying. If the wife says she forgives her husband, right, the one who had expectations she didn't ask, she didn't clarify, she would continue to believe that a truly loving husband would intuitively know what his wife desires at all times and that anything that disappointed her would be a sign that he didn't love her. Also, you see how it'd be bad? If the friend would believe their excessive attention to... Uh, if the friend would believe their excessive attention to their friend was the Christ-like standard for selfless sacrifice, then everyone else should match their unsustainable level of involvement in the life of others. The act of forgiving assumes the accuracy of one's assessment of the offense. Forgiveness is a morally laden action. It declares things not only bad, i.e. unpleasant or non-preferential, but also wrong against the character of God. If the moral assessment that undergirds the act of forgiving is inaccurate, then forgiving mischaracterizes God's assessment of the situation. You can begin to see the danger. Forgiving a misinterpretation reinforces the inaccurate perception. It even begins to align God with the misinterpretation. That's how it gets real weird, spiritually abusive stuff going on in relationships. The misinterpretation becomes increasingly impenetrable. We're convinced we're right, and we're unwilling to see it any other way. If the other person won't agree with us, we view them as being hard-hearted and resistant to God's will, intentional or not. This is a form of manipulation. Even with the best of intentions, it contributes to the deterioration of the relationship. So we don't forgive people for, like, disappointing us in non-sinful ways. We don't, we don't forgive people for making non-sinful mistakes. We don't forgive people for, uh, for uh, assumptions we made about what they should do that we never communicated. We don't forgive people for not meeting expectations they never agreed to that we never voiced. Does that make sense? Uh, that's a really, really big deal. Forgiveness is also not reconciliation, necessarily. It doesn't always lead. It, it can lead to reconciliation, Forgiveness, if reconciliation is going to happen, forgiveness has to precede it. But grieving honestly and the other person taking ownership. Um, grieving precedes forgiveness, and the other person taking responsibility and demonstrating trustworthiness uh, precedes reconciliation. So forgiving is not the same thing as reconciling. Forgiving, forgiveness takes place in your heart between you and God. Now, it has outworkings. I'm going to get into in a second. It has outworkings. But it, but it starts here, and it can happen um, only here, right? Uh, Romans 12, 18, we looked at this last week. It says this. It says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, which again, looks like a very, it's, it's a verse on reconciliation, but as much as it depends on you. And, and again, I belabored this last week. If you want to hear the sermon, this, this point was probably helpful. There are times in life where to do the right thing is to put you at odds with the other, a friend, a spouse, an enemy, whoever it is. To do the thing Jesus calls you to do could make them mad at you. It's morally right, but it makes them mad. It's what you're called to do, but it makes them mad. I forgive you. That doesn't mean that you're someone that's trustworthy or someone that I should reconcile with. For example, what if the person you're forgiving is a boyfriend who used to hit you? What if the person is an abuser? Forgiveness does not mean that you trust them overnight and put yourself in a position to be abused again. Some of the closest people to me have experienced the pain of sexual abuse. You better believe um, we don't let the people that did that, a justice uh, likely was, uh, should have been served. 
but, but, but we wouldn't trust them with children again. That, 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 that ship has sailed. That has nothing to do with forgiveness, protecting someone in the future. Another, so, so forgiveness doesn't equal trust, in other words. Trust is necessary for, for full reconciliation. And that's not always possible. Sometimes it's not possible because they are not trustworthy. Other times it's not possible because they're not alive anymore. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about forgiving a man who had died 30 years earlier, okay? Uh, someone may not want to reconcile. And many offenders never ask for forgiveness or reconciliation. And so forgiveness is a gift we give. Uh, at first, we're, we're obeying Jesus in forgiveness. We're giving a gift to ourselves and to others, but it doesn't always lead to reconciliation, okay? It doesn't always lead to the same level of relationship. Even amongst Christians, you may be like, I love them. It's not an abuse issue that it needs to involve the police or, or stealing or anything like that. Uh, but I also don't trust them. And so we're reconciled, like we love each other. But the relationship might take a while to get back where it was if it does at all. Okay? Uh, example, this would be like, imagine you, a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. You guys were both Christians, and the guy hurt you deeply, or the gal hurt you deeply. Okay? Let's just stick with one. Uh, a guy hurt you deeply. Okay? Now imagine... Um, you, you get married to another guy a few years later, and, uh, and this guy starts coming to your church, and, uh, and, and you forgive him or you've already forgiven him. Uh, you're not going to get back to the same level of relationship. Like, hey, you want to come over, cuddle? You want to kick it, watch movies? My roommate's gone, right? That's called adultery. That's not reconciliation. It's an obvious one, but, but I want you to see that. It doesn't always lead to the same level of relationship, even if forgiveness and even a level of reconciliation has happened between brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, if, you, if you were my accountant, right, I had a business, you're my accountant, and you stole a bunch of money, I'm not going to trust you to, to run the books again, even if, like, you're not working for me in that capacity, right? I might even forgive you and rehire you in another job down the line, but it's not going to be in that one. Okay, does that make sense? So, so again, uh, forgiveness and trust, reconciliation aren't exactly the same thing. Uh, for those of you who struggle with this, I thought this was really helpful. Again, Brad Hambrick uh, with the assist here, sponsoring today's sermon. He says, we must come to the biblical phrase about forgiveness that has the most power, meaning it can be used for both the greatest blessing and greatest harm. Forgive, forgive as Christ forgave you that two times in Ephesians and Colossians. He says, this is the phrase that can be used to flip forgiveness. Forgiveness on the person who has been hurt and seems to imply unqualified restoration or blind vulnerability, but doesn't. He says, consider the fact that not everyone goes to heaven, and Jesus does not entrust himself to everyone. Jesus was exceedingly gracious, but not a doormat. Jesus extends the opportunity for relationship. He does not allow people with the intent to do harm to set the terms for the relationship. With Jesus, there is nothing unforgivable, but there is not forgiveness on any terms. Like, if you've forgiven me, you need to reconcile with me. If you've forgiven me, you need to get back together with me. If you've forgiven me, you need to trust me, in other words. When we read a simple statement like God is not mocked, we often fail to recognize that this means God doesn't get conned by false tears. He doesn't get manipulated by conflicts of interest, and he doesn't wrestle his own emotional limitation. We do get caught in these binds. We seek to forgive as Christ forgave us amid these challenges. This requires wisdom. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. It is not trust. And last but not least, uh, forgiveness isn't something that happens outside of our will. Forgiveness isn't something that happens outside of our will. 
Again, I appreciate the counsel that we need to remember that forgiveness is a process because it is. But the thing about processes is that a processes occur over time, and things that occur over time tend to have a beginning. And, 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 and you know who's responsible for starting the process to forgive when you've been wronged? It's you. This doesn't mean the offense was your fault. It wasn't. It never is. Even when you sin, you're not responsible for the sin of the other, uh, of the other one. Two wrongs truly don't make a right. This isn't like a, a double technical in an NBA game. We're responsible for ourselves. So they're responsible for themselves, but you're responsible for the act of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a process preceded by a choice. You work out that process from a decision from a choice. I've chosen to forgive this person, so I'll treat them this way. Does that make sense? But it's not a process if you've not chosen to forgive them. In other words, forgiveness does not happen by accident. You're not going to wake up one day and be like, I think I forgave them. I'll ask people, do you think you've forgiven them? Like, I think so. I go, if you think so, you probably haven't. Time doesn't heal all wounds. Time gets the wound real dirty, can't see it, but it's infected. But it doesn't heal it like forgiveness does. So you have to make a choice to forgive, which is the hardest part of forgiveness, because here's the thing, no one deserves to be forgiven. Which leads to to number two. Two of these next three are shorter. They're not all going to be like number one. Take it easy. What forgiveness is? I've only got one definition of forgiveness. I don't have five. Forgiveness is acknowledging, I think I have this, is acknowledging that someone hurt you and absorbing the pain or cost of their offense and choosing to not get revenge. Forgiveness is acknowledging that someone hurts you and absorbing the pain or cost of their offense and choosing to not get revenge. Uh, This is our definition, uh, but now I am going to move to to Brad Hamrick for the, the third time today. I thought this was so helpful. He talks about three facets to forgiveness. Oh, this was so uh, helpful. Uh, intrapersonally, interpersonally, and socially. In other words, forgiveness that deals with the space inside of you, forgiveness that deals with the space between you and the offending party, and forgiveness that deals with the broader community you're a part of that you and the other person may occupy. Right? So, so how you feel internally, how you view them internally, how you engage with them between the two of you, and last but not least, like let's say you have a problem with someone at church, how you impact the other church people based on this offense with this one person? Do you bring a bunch of other people in on it? Uh, do you, da, da, da. So, so intrapersonally, uh, Brad says, this means I will not, if you've forgiven, intrapersonally means I will not dwell on this offense and reduce you to this failure. It's remembering that they are more than their offense, okay? It doesn't mean the offense is any smaller than it is. It's the size it is. But the person's not smaller than they are either. Someone can be a huge jerk to you who's a good dad or a good mom. Someone may have been a good friend to you at another season of your life who's really wronged you recently. Again, you don't play, downplay what they did, but you don't go, this is all you are. Maybe someone let you down and you go, oh, every time I, I just don't want to, I, I, I'm mad at them, da, da, da. Uh, and because they did one thing to you. Now, one thing may be real. I'm not talking about a dangerous issue or an abusive issue, just an everyday sin. Gossip, lied, let you down, whatever. Said something mean. 
And then you go, that's, I treat you as if that's all you are, is the mean person or the person who lied or whatever it is. Um, so it's uh, intrapersonally. It's also interpersonally. In, uh, interpersonally, the space between you. And so, so Brad Hambrick says, uh, this means I will not use this offense as a leverage to coerce you to involuntarily change in the future. I'm not going to use it as leverage. He says, imagine a friend who lied to you. You would expect that they, give, that they give deference to your preferences moving forward, expectations, or that they give tangible evidence that all their statements are true, special rules. If your friend is unwilling to voluntarily offset their deceit with more forthrightness, there is reason to question their repentance. In other words, if someone's lied to you about something for a long time, uh, you may go, hey, I, I, like, I'd appreciate evidence here based on how things have gone. I want to believe you, but, but I, I need this verified, the way things have gone. Um, if they scoff at that, does that make sense? You go, okay, they might not be serious about their repentance. In that case, forgiveness should not uh, progress toward trust. But if we try to force the fruit of repentance, we get baited into matching their lack of repentance with attempts to coerce change, leverage. We respond to one unhealthy pattern with a different unhealthy pattern of relating. This is not good for our soul, the other person, or the relationship. Forgiveness means not using past offenses as trump cards and present decision-making. When we forgive, we forego the verbal formula. Because you did blank sinful action, I expect you to blank positive action. Or because you did blank sinful action, you have no right to an otherwise reasonable action. This means we make requests rather than demands. So it would sound like it would help me if you would blank positive action because I'm still recovering from blank sinful action. See that difference? You're making a request. You're not saying you have to do this or else. If a reasonable request is made and is met with an aggressive, defensive, or neglectful response, the relationship is not at a point where trust and reconciliation are warranted. So that's the in-between, the, the, the two of you. And then lastly is socially. I will not bring up this event with others unless, this is a huge unless, it is to protect them. Okay? It is to protect them. We do not sweep stuff under the rug, like I said earlier. If, if the protection of someone uh, is at stake, we, we want to share the information we have. That's not gossip. That's not being divisive. Um, but the question you want to ask yourself to discern is, am I bringing stuff up to make someone pay? Or am I bringing this up to protect someone else from danger or harm? They're different things. Am I bringing stuff up to make someone pay? Or am I bringing this up to protect someone else from danger or harm? Again, physical sexual abuse, call the authorities immediately. Uh, if you need help with that, you need wisdom on that, again, we could connect you to some therapists, to some crisis workers. Uh, we'd love to chat to you around that. But, but what I'm definitely saying, I'm not telling you you have to call the, but I'm telling you um, it's not wrong to do that, okay? Uh, that, that, that's, uh, that that's okay. If someone stole money from you in a business arrangement, same idea. Uh, if you have a friend who's going to go into a business arrangement with that same person, you don't have to go, I don't want to be a gossip. They stole $30,000, $35,000 from me, but I don't, I don't want to tell Joe, man. Like, it'll ruin, you know, does that make sense? I don't want to make, you know, Ryan look bad or whatever. Uh, sorry, sorry, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> this man's never stolen a cent from me, okay? If you worked somewhere and you were sexually harassed and you have a friend who's going to work at that same company, you don't have to act like that didn't happen to you. Um, does that make sense? Or for the same person? Uh, if you've caught someone in multiple lies that harmed you relationally or financially, 
it'd be good to help to let someone else know who's engaging in a similar relationship, whether it's romantic or financial or whatever. That's different than someone gossiped about me before, or someone got drunk a few years ago and said really mean stuff, or I got it, or I got in a big argument with someone. We just didn't agree, and I'm mad about it. And then I go, I use things to make them look bad. It's very different. Does that make sense? Like any negative thing that could be said, you say. That's not protecting others from harm. So, so you're not sharing it unless it protects others from harm. Which leads to, to point number three. As I've walked through this, it's all these things go against what we want to do naturally when we're offended. Which is why we have to answer, you know, we have to, 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 to work through why forgiveness is so hard. Why forgiveness is so hard. And really I've got two reasons. Um, the first one is pain. Our pain. Here's the thing about forgiveness. It, again, it's always preceded by someone else's sin and your pain. It was someone lying about you or judging you or gossiping about you or stealing from you or abusing you, doing things or saying things that should never have been said or done to you or manipulating you or abandoning you and breaking a promise. Yes, forgiveness is painful, hard work. Forgiveness sounds so flowery, but it feels so hard. C.S. Lewis said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. <laughs> everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Forgiveness is hard. It needs to have a starting point, like I said earlier, but it does take time to work it out. But as you work it out, it does lead to what obeying Jesus always leads to, which is abundant life. There's a freedom that always comes from surrender and obedience to Jesus. Jesus will never harm us. He may hurt us. He'll never harm us. Like, did you just say Jesus will hurt us? I, I, I did. Like a surgeon. He will cut you open to heal you. He'll push you to work through things you don't want to work through to set you free from those very things. Uh, John Perkins, whom I quoted last week, he's an African-American pastor and civil rights worker from Mississippi, uh, amazing gospel proclaimer, gospel demonstrator. Uh, he said this about forgiveness. He said, until forgiveness is given, the victim is literally tethered to their abusers. Until forgiveness is given, the victim is literally tethered to their abusers. Forgiveness releases you from bondage in multiple ways. It releases you from the bitterness uh, 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 the bitterness of the burden of bitterness and of the burden of vengeance. But on the way, it's painful. And so one reason forgiveness is hard is, is pain, but it's also hard because of our pride. Forgiveness is hard because of our pride. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus teaches a parable. It's called the parable of the unmerciful servants. And if I'm honest with you guys, I resonate with the unmerciful servant so much and so little with Jesus. Uh, he says this, uh, Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. It says, Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? By the way, uh, traditional teaching at the time with rabbis was that you forgave someone three times for the same offense. Okay, three times. So, so Peter's like, I'm doubling up and adding one. Like, this is an extra credit situation with the rabbi. It's like, bro, seven times. Jesus says, I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70, 70 times seven. Okay? Now, don't work out what that amounts to. Jesus is saying it's an infinite number. 
For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. So a king realizes he's had a servant who's been embezzling from him uh, a ton of money, a money that no human could pay back. It's empire money. It's not human bank account money. It's, it's countries, you know, GDP's situations, situation. Verse 26 says, at this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. The servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, right? So this thief, big thief, gets called into account, doesn't have the money, going to be sold into slavery along with his entire family for generations. And he has forgiven that debt. Just imagine that for a second, the, the mental space you're in experiencing that. Verse 28 says, then that same servant who had just been forgiven went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. It's be like a, a week's pay. It's not nothing, right? It's a week's salary. It's not nothing. It's not that. It's not nothing, but it's not that. And it doesn't say he stole it, by the way. It says he, he like, you know, it doesn't say he stole it. He could have, but it says he owed it to him. So the assumption is that he borrowed it. He grabs that guy. He starts choking him and says, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. Now, the servant wouldn't forgive even though he had been forgiven. And it's because he had lost sight of the debts he was forgiven. Now, parables are designed by Jesus to teach us something about our relationship with God using an everyday illustrations original listeners would have been familiar with. And Jesus is comparing financial debt with the moral spiritual debt we have before God, which we saw all about at the beginning of Romans. Jesus is saying people who forget they have been forgiven don't forgive. People who forget they have been, have been forgiven don't forgive. Tim Keller once said, those who won't forgive show they have not accepted the fact of their own sinfulness. Those who won't forgive show they have not accepted the fact of their own sinfulness. But on the flip side, when we begin to remember that we have been forgiven much, we can forgive much. Which leads to my last point. Where can we find the power to forgive? And it's in seeing Jesus' forgiveness extended to us and his life and his death on the cross. Again, Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another. This is powerful. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You can only forgive to the extent that you've been forgiven. He doesn't have to forgive us. He's only been good to us, and we have never treated him as he deserves. But he willingly acknowledges our sin. He absorbs the cost of our sin on the cross, and he does not go to get revenge. He doesn't go to get revenge. He goes to get us. Again, we can only forgive, and we've experienced the personal forgiveness of Jesus. Again, when, when 
the king forgets, forgives the first servant, that's at great cost to himself. It's not like, oh man, it's 50 cents, no big deal. It's like, this is a ton of, this is billions of dollars, essentially. That would hurt the king. And he forgave the debt of sins that, uh, he forgave the debt of, a uh, debt of, financial debt that could never be paid back. In the same way, Jesus has forgiven us a debt of sins that we can never pay him back for. He's taken the cost of our sin upon himself by dying on the cross for us. And on the cross, Jesus looks at us and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, I thank you that you don't ask us to do something that you have not done to us. Jesus, I ask, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us remember remember Jesus, who he was, who he is, what he did on the cross for us. That is forgiveness manifested. That is love manifested and personified. That's a life freely given. That's someone absorbing the cost, our cost. It's the debt we racked up. And you take the penalty we deserve. You died the death we deserve to die. The life that you lived in is now offered to us as abundant life, a new way forward, a new future, a new father, a new righteousness, a new standing. And it's all because you forgave us. And the hard truth for us is that no one deserves to be forgiven, but that is a beautiful truth when you know that, but you've been forgiven. So thank you, Jesus, for forgiving us. Go ahead and thank him in your own heart right now for first forgiveness. Go ahead and confess your sin and say, Jesus, I've done this thing. And then thank him for his forgiveness. Give you guys a second. Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness. You see all of this sin. You don't sweep it under the rug. You call it what it is. But you don't define us by it. Matter of fact, you allowed yourself to be defined by it on the cross. You were treated as if you had committed these sins. And we're so, so grateful. Thank you that your body was broken, that your blood was shed. We're keenly aware, as I've taught, that forgiveness does not equal trust and that it certainly doesn't equal reconciliation always. But we thank you that in this case, that's exactly what it led to. So right now, as we, we come to, to worship musically, would we worship uh, as people who have nothing to be ashamed of because Jesus died for our shame? Even the sins we committed this morning, Jesus, you paid for. We can step out freely and confidently as your righteous sons and, and daughters. And so, Lord, would, would you help us to bask in our reconciliation this morning, bask in our adoption, bask in our new relationship that was made possible because of you. Our sin doesn't define us anymore. You loved us. Would your love lead us into worship? We love you, Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen.